This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, August 27th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. The U.S. departure from Afghanistan is ugly, but how much of it was avoidable? Will Ruger was President Trump's nominee for ambassador to Afghanistan. He's also a research fellow in foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. We spoke Wednesday about the Taliban takeover and the costs of the so-called sustainable stalemate in Afghanistan that many defenders of America's longest war wanted to maintain. Between the Trump administration and the Biden administration, how much of a through line is there in departure plans from Afghanistan? Well, I think the most important through line is the fact that President Biden essentially accepted what the Trump administration had negotiated with the Taliban. Uh, You know, so the Biden administration dithered a bit in terms of the review and that led to having to push the, uh, the the full withdrawal back, and I think that was the problem. But they did accept the basic premise, which was that the United States needed to withdraw militarily from Afghanistan, needed to end America's longest war, and that the reason for this was because it was in America's national interests, and we could meet the minimal interests that we have in Afghanistan around counterterrorism without a permanent troop presence. And I think that President Biden has done a good job in terms of explicating the arguments for why. But the fact is, is that this was the Trump-Biden withdrawal uh, and the Trump withdrawal that Biden inherited, and he chose the withdrawal over Biden's war. And, and that's something that I think was really critical about what President Trump did is, is it, it created certain facts on the ground that made it more likely that we were going to get a Trump-Biden withdrawal not a continued permanent presence of American troops that I think ultimately would have led um, to a lot of American casualties because the Taliban was not going to accept, uh, you know, the status quo. And that's been one of the problems with with what people have been talking about who disagreed with the withdrawal, saying that this was a sustainable status quo of 2,500 troops or thereabouts and no Americans had been killed. And you, you've seen actually Uh, you know, figures who should know better than to say that because it's just so obvious that the reason why no Americans have been killed since the Doha agreement was because of the fact there was a withdrawal deal and the Taliban were were trying to make sure that they weren't preventing the United States from getting out by making sure that they didn't kill Americans. And and actually, it's fairly impressive that the Taliban was able to exert the the kind of operational control inside its um, organization such that we we didn't see these American casualties. And and thank God. I don't pay enormous attention to uh, foreign policy issues, especially with respect to uh, war, uh, certainly not as much as you do or uh, as much as uh, foreign policy scholars at the Cato Institute do. But the the idea of a sustainable stalemate, I think, as as it was uh, described, is couched entirely within terms of American casualties. It's not couched within terms of Afghan casualties at all. And if you include those casualties as part of a calculation, it looked to me like the United States was actively losing in Afghanistan as a technical matter, but also losing possibly hearts and minds if you see the numbers of casualties uh, that were uh, among the Afghan forces. Yeah, you're right in the, in the sense that 
you know, Afghan forces were were getting hit very hard, and you know, you're talking a lot of of death and destruction, not just of Afghan security forces, but also civilians caught up in the crossfire of the civil war. Uh, but I think when it comes to American politics, uh, I think that unfortunately, oftentimes those costs are, uh, you know, aren't really in the the story as much. Uh, uh, and again, that uh, that's understandable because when you make decisions about America's national interests and how the United States military should be used to support those, it is the case that we should be concentrated most in decision making on what's right and proper for the security and our and prosperity of the United States. But still, I think that especially given that some of the justification for being involved in these forever wars is the humanitarian concerns or values promotion, then clearly those costs should be part of the calculus. And I think it's oftentimes uh, it's not stated to the extent to which it ought to be. Well, and but even if you took a, a strategic view of look, we're going to build up these Afghan fighting forces and then we will have this opportunity to leave. It it seemed like the United States was actively losing in that fight for a considerable amount of time. Yeah, again, the Taliban had operational and tactical momentum. And what that means is that we were, we meaning the coalition, including the Afghan uh you know, government, the, you know, we were, we were in a position in which the Taliban was continuing to put pressure in the countryside and was achieving its goals, admittedly, you know, probably slower uh, when the United States had thousands of troops there, but it was still a kind of slow loss. And, And even people who had advocated staying understood that there was this slow losing happening. And again, that's where we go back to the fact that I think we would have had to have a situation where we would have a a really major increase in America's commitment to this conflict if we were going to slow down and reverse the tides that were occurring on the battlefield in Afghanistan. And I think, again, President Trump and President Biden both wisely pulled the plug on this on this uh, campaign because it's simply uh, uh, it wasn't worth uh, further expenditure, particularly given some of the challenges of the Afghan government itself. What were some of those challenges? I mean, uh, aside from, you know, it, it felt like the U.S. and the Afghan government sort of captives of each other in a way. Um, but what were the specific challenges of the Afghan government? Well, one of the biggest problems that we faced trying to help support the host nation, you know, the the government of Afghanistan, was that there was endemic corruption that was exacerbated by well-intentioned but still, uh, you know, problematic infusions, massive infusions of of money, and that fueled corruption that was is endemic to Afghan society and the Afghan government. You know, the other problem too is that you're building a dependent in which there's actually an incentive you're creating. Uh, for the government not to solve some of these challenges, because uh, the worst success in some ways would have been for not not to us or humanity, but for those who had become dependents would have been uh, success. Walk me through that a little bit. I, I think I understand what you're saying, but just the idea it's that the, it's it, a little bit like the March of Dimes problem, right? W- once you solve the problem your institution is is designed for, uh, you know, then how do you keep the money flowing? 
how do you keep the resources, attention, and energies uh, flowing? And in, in this case, the donor wasn't like the March of Dimes, you know, people. It, it's it's the American taxpayers. Uh, how do you justify that? And I'm not saying that there was a kind of purposeful uh, effort to not win. It's simply that the incentives uh, are were quite different than, for example, the incentives of the American GIs in World War II, who were sent over there for uh, until we quote unquote won the war, right, and had a strong incentive to to um, uh, resolve the conflict one way or the other. It, you know, there's there's a real problem in the sense that whether it's the the problems of of uh, uh, foreign aid that have been discussed widely by classical liberal scholars and economists uh, to even the, just the problems of moral hazard in, you know, well-intentioned policy to make us safer, right? That that it creates bad incentives. And I think we, we've we done that uh, a lot in our foreign policy. And, and that's one of the, one of the challenges is that how do you, how do you push enough, right? Cajole enough to get movement uh, but at the same time, not inducing the dependent, if you will, to uh, you know to go um, to flatline, <laughs> and uh, and so it's a very difficult thing for this kind of, in a way, principal agent relationship that we developed. With respect to, I, there's a lot of jockeying right now for position to uh, lay so much blame at uh, Joe Biden for the uh, technical elements of this pullout, the timing of it, uh, how much of that could have been avoided uh, given the the short time frame that uh, at least w- Donald Trump's plan to to leave Afghanistan was handed to Joe Biden with you know it, was that avoidable? Well, I mean, there's going to be a lot of room for uh, holding people accountable uh, you know ahead. But not just accountable for some of the problems faced by the immediate ac- evacuation, but for the 20 years in which the United States has been spending precious blood and treasure in Afghanistan. And, and we saw this with the Afghan papers uh, that the Washington Post published, where you had our leaders telling us things, uh, you know, misleading us about the progress that was being made in Afghanistan. When in reality, they had very little clue how to achieve the expanded war aims that really doomed the project. And it might be good to kind of back up and think about that. Like, why were we in Afghanistan? I mean, unfortunately, we have some viewers who, who uh, or listeners who probably weren't even born uh, when this war kicked off. And, and they may not understand wholly what we were doing in the first place. And and I think it's important to talk about what we were trying to achieve or what we needed to achieve. I mean, the United States needed to do three things in Afghanistan. It needed to punish the Taliban for its state support of al-Qaeda. It needed to decimate or attrit al-Qaeda as an effective terrorist organization with the intent and capability to harm the United States. And it needed to kill or capture Osama bin Laden. And those things were all accomplished relatively early. Uh, in you know, especially compared to the twenty-year span of this war, and uh, I think that the problem was that we expanded the war aims well beyond what was accomplishable, 
Uh, but even more important in some ways, what was required, right? So this was this was became a war of choice. We didn't need to do this for our security or our prosperity uh, or to safeguard a liberal democratic system here at home. Uh, instead, these were nice to haves or these were things that it's really not the proper role of government uh, you know, to perform. It's not the role of the United States government in the system that we have, a, a liberal system in which the government is our agent, right? We're the principal. The government is supposed to support the protection of our property rights, both individually and collectively, against aggressors, foreign or domestic. And so we took upon ourselves the notion that we had to spread our values. We had to build schools in Helmand. We needed to change Afghan society. We needed to promote human rights. We needed to create a centralized government that could effectively govern uh, the Afghan space. Uh, and this was a, a fool's errand. There was no way we were going to do that. And part of that is a hubris about what America could accomplish. And you know, one of the great things about America is that you know we don't like to accept limits. We you know, and that's one of the reasons why we could go to the moon. It's one of the reasons why we could you know build such a great country. Uh, you know, and and I think individuals, businesses, uh, civil society groups have done some of the best things in America. But even our government has performed, uh, you know, in some cases, um, in ways that have been you know daunting or, or amazing. Right? You think about the the um, uh, you know the kind of arsenal of democracy we became during World War II. It was it was quite remarkable. So we we have a kind of can do spirit and. One of the problems is that that can lead to hubris. It can lead to you know a kind of um, immaturity, and I think that's what happened. We can we can do this. We can change Afghan society. Their culture isn't sticky. Uh, there, these constraints can be overcome because we of of kind of that can do spirit and 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 the fact that you know who are these people, right? You hear these derogatory uh, you know kind of notions about Afghans, right? Uh, a simple people. How could they just use, you know, AK-47s and cell phones and things like this to to overcome our, you know, superior military? But it was just so filled with with kind of problematic assumptions, and and you saw what happened. There was a point at which uh, then ex President Trump uh, said Joe Biden should get these troops out of Afghanistan earlier. Uh, this was a statement that he had made on his personal website that has since vanished from uh, that website. And uh, a lot of Republicans, especially I suspect uh, of the neoconservative variety, hoping for to make a neocon comeback of sorts, uh, were are, are just champing at the bit to uh, blame President Biden for this, quote unquote, hasty withdrawal. How do you see it? Yeah, you heard those terms hasty and precipitous thrown around quite a bit, even during President Trump's uh, uh, tenure in, in, in the Oval Office. Uh, but it's remarkable, right? I mean, we've had since the Doha agreement in February of 2020, uh, even Henry Kissinger in The Economist talked about, you know, we haven't given our allies enough warning. I mean, how much time do they need? Uh, you know, you think about the, the, you know, the Pentagon has known since February of 2020, and they knew that, that Ambassador Khalilzad was working on a, a withdrawal agreement with the Taliban. So there's been plenty of time to plan for this, and it has not been hasty. 
I, again, this is these are bad faith arguments. I hate to say it, uh, and I usually don't like to assume bad faith uh, in the marketplace of ideas. Just take the ideas on 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 their face and and argue with them. But these have to be bad faith, right? Because there's been so much time to plan for this. Uh, there's been so many opportunities to succeed in Afghanistan, given the the twenty years. Again if this was actually a, a winnable war in terms of those expanded war aims. But the, but the Pentagon didn't want you know, us to leave. Uh, the, the Washington foreign policy establishment, sure, there have been you know, dis, you know, different voices on this. But in general, the Washington foreign policy establishment, I don't think, favored this. There was lots of talk of like, well, we can keep a contingent there. We shouldn't absolutely withdraw. Um, and there's been a, you know, a fair number, I think, of, of, of Johnny-come-latelys to this once, uh, you know, in, maybe in the Republican Party, once President Trump said we're going to do it in the Democratic Party, once President Biden said. Uh, you know, but I do think you have a situation in which these arguments are made in bad faith. Um, it hasn't been hasty at all. Uh, but because of the fact that people, I think, were hoping that this would go away, just like Trump's Syria withdrawal eventually went away, right? Partly through the chicanery of some of the people that were in the Trump administration who were essentially misleading uh, the White House on these matters. But I think there was a sense like, well, if President Trump loses the election, President Biden will come in and he talks about sacred uh, alliances and partnerships and you know, he's part of, of, of official Washington for decades. He's not going to carry this out. And so we'll wait Trump out and then we'll hope that President Biden will change his mind. And of course he will. So, you know, and again, it's not to say that there weren't, you know, uh, plans being made. But the fact is, is how serious did people take it and how serious did the did the Afghan government take it? The political takeaway for the average voter, at least at this point, seems to be, yeah, this is messy, but this was clearly the right decision. Yeah, it's it's quite remarkable how actually well public opinion is held up in the face of an almost constant news barrage by journalists who are in the front of the paper uh, and, and, and meant to tell us the story, but who are in fact opining about what we ought to be doing. And I think that you've seen that. Uh, there was a, a New York Magazine piece just on this uh, that came out, I think, today that, you, you know, I think the listeners should have a look at. Uh, it was it was really interesting. Uh, but what you've seen is that the public supported this uh, roughly around, you know, two thirds of the public, 70 percent. And that includes veterans and military households. So and this is a range of different polls. This isn't just cherry picking a push poll. I mean, good polling, different organizations doing it and pretty fair questions about two thirds, 70 percent of the public. Then when you saw some of those scenes from Kabul, you saw things drift down a little bit, but it's still held in the in the mid to high 50s. Uh, and there's been a lot of stability in this over time, too. I mean, it's not as if it, it is simply, uh, you know, over the last 18 months that you've seen it at that level. There's been a lot of talk for years about how the public is less sanguine about this war uh, than people here in Washington. Now, there was a really interesting poll today uh, that uh, uh, came out uh, from, um, I, I think it was it was uh, highlighted in Morning Consult, and what it it talked about or what it, what it noted is that 
It asked if the U.S. should still withdraw its military presence in Afghanistan if it means it creates an opening for al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups to establish operations in Afghanistan. I mean, it'd be hard to imagine, uh, uh, you know, something being more of a push to, to get the respondent to say, well, no, we shouldn't withdraw. And yet, yeah, if you'd, a- if you'd asked that question in mid-2002... Yeah, I mean, it seems pretty clear what the intent of that question is. Yeah, and if you had asked in two thousand two, should we you know, withdraw? Uh, I think a lot of even realists and restrainers would have said no. I mean, I myself, for example, supported the original war aims uh, and our original fight there in Afghanistan, and thought it was necessary on security grounds. And uh, I think a lot of a lot of uh, restrainers did. Um, but this the, the the this poll it was forty five percent said still withdraw and forty percent said don't withdraw. That's a pretty amazing number that you got a plurality still in favor of still withdraw. Given the wording of that, I mean, it's I think it's remarkable, and I think it shows you that public opinion on this is not soft like it can be on other issues, uh, especially in foreign policy where elite cues are so important to framing and shaping public opinion. But I think in this case. I think, first of all, Republicans have been were educated by President Trump about the problems of these forever wars or ending endless wars. And then there's always been a constituency with, on the Democratic side. Again, there's, there's a battle going on within, you know, kind of Democratic foreign policy circles between kind of more progressive restrainers like Ro Khanna, Bernie Sanders, people like that, and your more traditional uh, liberal interventionists uh, that were important during the Obama administration and led us into Libya. Uh, but it also been supportive of even the Iraq war and, 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 you know, kind of harkening back to Madeleine Albright's really hubristic statements about how, you know, the United States stands taller and sees further. And that's why we can do all these things. Right. So there's, but, but what you have is that you have a president Trump has educated these Republican voters B president Biden. Once he signed on, uh, that had a, an effect, I think in, in helping. And especially because I think president Biden did a great job in explaining why. And I think some of those statements by President Biden were among the better explanations for the realist arguments that you're you're going to see from presidents in a country that is very loath to make realist-like statements about our foreign policy. I mean, if you think about how people talk about this, uh, it tends to be within the framework of, of, of liberalism as opposed to realism. But President Biden, I'll give him credit uh, for making that case in, in, a, in a very prudentialist way. And so I think you have a public that's pretty firmly firm around this. And, and, and the other thing, too, we shouldn't forget is, is that there is the lamp of experience that guides us on this, not just you know, Washington foreign policy scholars, but just the general public. They've seen 20 years of conflict. They haven't seen things working out very well. Uh, if they pay attention at all to Afghanistan, wh- where's the good news, right? And again, people talk about, well, in Kabul, there's been this, you know, proliferation of building and, uh, and uh, you know, expansion of, of, of women's rights. And there is some of that for sure. But the news has not been very great in Afghanistan over the last 20 years. And some of the hallmark things were things that should have allowed us to think about getting out, like the killing of Osama bin Laden. And and if you if one of the remarkable things we saw this past weekend was was Admiral Mike Mullen, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, he came out and said that we should have got out earlier. 
And, you know, so you're really seeing, I think, uh, some key elites and the public generally supportive of this and it's stuck. And uh, I have been heartened that President Biden seems to have stiffened his spine around this and is not going to flinch. It has been uh, interesting to see uh, the politics sort of take shape on this so quickly. Uh, it is it appears, at least to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that a lot of the people who just want to be critical of this president for making a difficult decision that was, in my view, clearly putting American interests uh, above the interests of anybody else, uh, was the hope that the technicalities of the withdrawal, the technical uh, problems with this withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, would hopefully swamp all of the bad news that we've had about Afghanistan for several years running, including uh, severely being misled about progress uh, that we just learned about two years ago. Yeah, and and I think that that obviously the the evacuation troubles have challenged Americans to try to make that distinction, right? Um, to 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 make that I think nuanced and correct distinction that the decision to withdraw uh, can be assessed separately from how the administration has been implementing this, and I think so given some of the poll numbers we've seen, I think Americans have generally done that, uh, and it may be too that Americans have been educated about the status of our of our twenty year project by the fact that the Afghan government collapsed so quickly. I mean, to me, you look at the scenes uh, as, as you know, the Afghan military melted away, as uh, political leaders fled the country, uh, as there appeared to be really little legitimacy uh, that the government had built over these 20 years. Uh, I, I think people looked at that and and they said, geez, uh, man, if, if I didn't think it was time to go before, it seems like there wasn't a lot there that we were actually had created. Uh, and if they had supported President Trump or President Biden, uh, I think it 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 buttressed, uh, you know, their the firmness of their opinions. How much of this is going to stick as a lesson? Because that, because that's the that to me that's the the scary thing about this is the potential that we're not going to learn this, uh, or the the salience of this event, n- recognizing that this was a good call, will not last uh, for more than a few years. Well, I, I I think some of your pessimism is warranted here because the Iraq War should have taught us. A, a huge lesson about the problems of trying to engage in remaking uh, countries in the Middle East or engaging in regime change. And yet you saw, you know, again, it taught us something because we didn't end up using um, a large force in Libya, but we did depose the Libyan government. Uh, and then it surprised me that anybody was surprised that things didn't go swimmingly after doing that because we had had the lesson of of Iraq. I mean, in Libya, which is an underrated debacle um, that President Biden, or sorry, President Obama set us uh, on that path there, as well as you know some of his key staffers like Hillary Clinton and and others. Um, you know, it's underrated. Right? You know, arms flowed 
out, terrorists flowed in, there was a civil conflict, it destabilized uh, states like Mali, and then it provoked a refugee crisis to Europe that then had a, had some effects on the politics of Europe, including promoting um, you know some you know more ugly elements uh, of the of European political scene. So it's underrated. Uh, but even you know, leaving aside the Iraq War, the Vietnam War wasn't that long ago, right? I mean, uh, we have a lot of boomers still around today, and the boomers allegedly cut their teeth in you know the summer of '68 and and whatnot, right? I mean, they they they, they were it was about peace, peace and love. Right, and, and yet the the peace and love generation didn't seem to learn the lesson of Vietnam, um, you know, which would have should have lasted much longer, uh, and and certainly, I think that you know it's it's so odd today hearing people talk about Saigon and comparing Afghanistan to Saigon, as if uh, the what happened at, at Saigon ultimately wasn't something that needed to happen. It was ultimately a, uh, that the withdrawal of our forces from Vietnam was better for the United States national interests. It saved a lot of American lives, stopping our our support, uh, our war in, in Vietnam. And who looks, I mean, I, I really raised a question, like who looks fondly on the, you know, fif, what is 58,000 Americans who died in that war? Who looks fondly on a war like that that ultimately led to uh, a, a complete loss? Uh, and and yet you you heard just strange revisionism about uh, you know the early uh, and mid seventies uh, in the debate about Afghanistan and I and I do ultimately think um, that Americans and the history books will look back at this period and say yeah it was the right thing to do and and why did it take us so darn long to leave. Uh, I think that's the case, but I do worry that the the messiness of the evacuation, uh, and I think there was going to be messiness one way or another when we got out of this. And in fact, you could argue that uh, one of the worst case results would have been a really messy uh, fight in the major cities like Kabul, in which innocent Afghans were caught in the crossfire, and you could have seen lots of civilian casualties and a pretty heated heated battles and. Um, you know, and still leading to the same result of the Taliban, uh, you know, overthrowing the, the the government of Afghanistan. Uh, but I think um, I think that very much the critiques of Biden, some of them are are, are responsible, right? I mean, I have friends uh, in the national security community who I think are fair, uh, and and some of them even support withdrawal, who have been very critical of of, of the Biden administration's implementation. And I, I, I take those people um, that they're acting in good faith. I think there are a lot of others, though, that are simply trying to undermine withdrawal and undermine the bigger fight for realism and restraint uh, against realism and restraint that is, uh, is now kind of fully pitched, right, between primacy and restraint. And it's been brewing for some time now. And I think that, that there's a purposeful attempt to try to say, look, these withdrawals were a mistake. They're hasty. Uh, we could have sustained something different. Uh, we could have sustained our, our, our uh, the forces we had there. And you know, look, it's those restrainers that got us into this. That that couldn't be anything further from the truth, of course. Um, but I think that the 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 primacist status quo elite, what President Biden called the blob, they're very eager to try to regain, uh, you know, their uh, hegemony, uh, if you will. And, but it's also 
you know, if you're a, a dedicated Trump supporter, uh, this was a key element of his campaign. This was a, a part of uh, his speeches, speeches of his proxies, his supporters who are going out and giving speeches. Ending the forever wars was a key element of that. And it seems to me that there's a pretty reasonable and strong case to be made that the America firsters uh, in the United States can say, yeah, um, this America first means not making massive mistakes like getting into wars that last a long time where we have to leave ignominiously. Right. And and that's why when we talk about accountability, we need to be talking about accountability for this 20 year problem, this project that that didn't work out. Um, and to hold those architects accountable, I think would be would be useful. And instead, you know, they're they're still fed it, right? They're still the people who were the architects of this war. You know, they're still you know getting the invites, you know, to the big events. They're still the ones interviewed by the the major you know papers of record. They're the ones that are looked to first by bookers on the big TV shows. Uh, and you know, it, it mystifies me in some way that there hasn't been more learning. I mean, why would we want to listen to some of those folks? They were wrong time after time after time. And I think the reason why people don't want to hold those folks accountable is because there was a, I think there's, there is a, a kind of general, uh, mindset, a kind of, um, shared vision that a lot of people in this space have. And, and, you know, you mentioned earlier, about how, uh, you know, this foreign policy is in an area where uh, there, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty, it's an expert led area, right? It's not a, it's not, and I would say it's not a pocketbook issue that it's easy for people to sort out. Like if I said to the average person, you know, is Georgia critical to America's security? They would say like, well, I love Atlanta. It's a great place, of course. And, and they may not be thinking that much about Georgia, the country, and should it be part of NATO. And so they're looking to elites to cue them. And elites have a lot of opinions about this. And there's been a shared mindset among the elite for decades. I grew out of the end of the Cold War where we were successful. And then uh, as we you know, pivoted or, 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 or sustained or extended our primacy, uh, and it's only been recently where you've seen uh, a much bigger share of the conversation and the institutionalization of realism and restraint. Now, I will give great praise to the Cato Institute because the Cato Institute has has been one of the, I think, um, you could say lights in the dark for years and years. I mean, think about the 90s and the early aughts. You know, I participated in the Exiting Iraq project uh, that uh, that Chris Preble and others at the Cato Institute were involved with. And I remember people just saying, like, this is ridiculous. I mean, it's the pottery barn principle. How could you say we should be exiting Iraq? Uh, you know, so at the at the depths, uh, I think, of of the of the kind of realism and restraint community at the at, when we were at our depths, you know, Cato was a place that was kind of keeping the flame alive. Um, of course, there were always, uh, you know, academics here and there, but uh, but Cato was like was a key um, pole here in Washington, and and I'll always be, you know, you know, be proud of Cato for for being that pole. Um, but now there's a lot more 
groups out there that are advancing these arguments and a lot more scholars. And and that's exciting. And it should be exciting for all of us, even, even those of us who have had an affiliation with Cato, um, because it's I think it's great to see all this. Uh, it's great to see Steve Wertheim of the Carnegie Endowment out there so much. It's great to see the Quincy Institute out there. It's great to see defense priorities. It's you know, it's it's just very heartening to see how many groups and institute and individuals are promoting the sense that we need a more responsible foreign policy, one that looks at our national interests squarely and looks at the world as it is, not with these kind of idealistic blinders on. And and Cato is still part of that fight. Um, you know, but uh, but it is it is amazing, I think, kind of how it's changed since the late 90s when I first started getting involved around the Kosovo War and in the early 2000s when it was pretty bleak for the argument that we need a different approach to our foreign policy. And unfortunately, maybe the country had to learn by that lamp of experience. I just would have rather if we I would have rather have had us, you know, choose to have a more robust conversation about what American foreign policy should look like right after the Cold War. And maybe we could have avoided some of these problems if we had right-sized our foreign policy consistent with our interests and consistent with the nature of the world around us. Because we were in an unbelievably uh, um, fortunate security position at the end of the Cold War. You know, the Soviet Union had fallen. There were no peer competitors out there at all. The United States had the advantage of having this really powerful military, nuclear weapons, the geographic advantages that we've always had as a country, and no real um, opportunity for any uh, near great power to try to dominate Eurasia, which had been a traditional concern of of the United States. Um, none of that, you know, was was a problem. And so, rather than you know, kind of harboring our strengths, meeting some of this the the needs and demands we had at home, you know, because again, foreign and domestic priorities are, are traded off against each other. Instead, we launched on this primacist grand strategy that ultimately, I think, has proven to be a failure for the United States. Now, we're so strong and powerful, it hasn't led to the same kind of failure that uh, other hubristic strategies have, You know, whether it was the Wilhelmine Germany or others. But the fact is, is that we set out on this path and it has not been successful. And that's why there is an opportunity for Cato and all these other groups and individuals to provide a positive vision of what our America's role in the world should be and to keep pushing for us getting out of these forever wars and, and remaking uh, you know, our grand strategy. Will Ruger was President Trump's nominee for ambassador to Afghanistan. He's also a research fellow in foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.